Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. One of the repercussions of U.S. manufacturing moving offshore, particularly to China, is that we've weakened our industrial base, or in other words, we have lessened our ability to manufacture the equipment we need to defend ourselves. I read an article this summer in the Wall Street Journal titled, America's Industrial Base Isn't Ready for War with China, and reached out to one of the authors, Alex Gray, to ask some follow-on questions. Alex graciously offered to be a guest on the Job Shop Show so we could explore this topic in further detail. You don't need to read the article to get value from the conversation, but in case you want to, and I encourage you to do so, the link is in the podcast show notes. Let's roll. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, very excited to have you here. And in checking out your bio, it looks like you've recently spent some time in Taiwan. Yes, about a month. Yeah. So obviously, Taiwan's been in the news. China's been very aggressive in their military maneuvers. And there's an increased chance that China might actually invade Taiwan. What was the mood like there and, and why were you there? So I was there to work with a think tank research institution for about a month as a visiting fellow, looking at some of the issues that you describe. Basically, you know, what, where are we? What, what do we need to be doing, both Taiwan and the United States? to prevent what happened with Russia and Ukraine happening with China and Taiwan. And, you know, the mood in Taiwan, I think, and I've been, you know, going there on and off for about a decade and, and spent a lot of time when I was in the government working with Taiwan on their defense. 
And, you know, the mood has has changed dramatically since Ukraine was invaded. And yes. I, I think what Taiwanese government people, military people, but also just the average man on the street are understanding now is that it doesn't matter how prosperous you are. It doesn't matter how peaceful you are. Some of these authoritarian regimes like China, like Russia, are going to be pursuing their own objectives. And if Ukraine can be invaded, if the Ukrainian people can end up fighting in the streets and having to defend their homeland, it could happen to Taiwan. And uh, I, I think that realization has, um, you know, we, we now see this huge upswing of Taiwanese who are, are getting military training, who mm. are learning civil defense skills like the Ukrainians have learned. So this is, of all the times I've been there and talked to people, this was the most realistic I've ever seen the average person in Taiwan about the threat that they're facing from Beijing. Wow. You don't want things like that to happen, but you don't want to stick your head in the sand and pretend it's not a possibility yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. So Alex, our typical guest is somehow involved in making parts and you don't make parts. You're not there. No. However, you are an incredibly important advocate for making parts. Maybe you could share a little bit of your background. Yeah. So I, I come at this issue from kind of the policy government perspective, I spent most of my career in and out of government, was on Capitol Hill as a, a staffer focused on national security and China issues for a number of years, and then spent four years at the White House in the Trump administration and was in my first role there. I was the deputy director of the Office of Trade and, Trade and Manufacturing Policy, uh, where under Dr. Peter Navarro, and I had the defense industrial base was kind of my main focus, but broadly, the health and the resilience of the U.S. manufacturing industry. And mm. you know, we saw a direct connection between the health of our manufacturing economy and our workforce and our national defense. And so I spent a great amount of my time advocating within the government and to external audiences for just how critical it is that if you don't have that domestic manufacturing capacity, you don't have a military, you don't have a national security capacity. And we can talk as much as we want about we're in this digital quantum AI age. Mm. That's great. But it's still we are still primarily an industrial economy and an industrial military. And we don't practice policy in a way that reflects that. So that that became a huge passion of mine and uh, spent two years doing that. Then went over to the National Security Council within the White House, did about a year focused on China issues, and then became the uh, the chief of staff of the National Security Council, the, the number three guy there, and had kind of a global view, but still focused very heavily on the nexus between our national security threats and a manufacturing and industrial economy and the fact that look we just cannot operate particularly in a world where we're no longer fighting terrorists as our main issue we're fighting we're potentially in conflict with with russia with china we have to have a manufacturing economy that can sustain military operations at that that peer com competitor level and that's something that for about 30 years the u.s just kind of gave up on and we tried very hard to make that a priority. What's your role now? Where do you spend yeah. your time and your days? 
So I've got a consulting firm with former National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien. We set up after we left government. I actually work with a lot of manufacturing companies, maritime companies, defense mm. companies who are very interested in this sort of thing, onshoring, nearshoring, bringing manufacturing capacity back to the U.S. And we try and, and make sure that, you know, from a, a public policy standpoint, businesses understand what are their options and, and what are the things they need to be doing to be successful in this new world of, of China competition. And frankly, we're starting to finally see policy coming out of Washington that acknowledges that we have to reindustrialize. We have to get back to a manufacturing and industrial economy. So we try and help clients navigate that. And I also do, you know, my background being so heavily on Asia, I also do a lot of writing and speaking about China and, and the threat we face from them. Well, I think everything you just described is the, the listeners here is falling on welcome ears. The manufacturing is in our blood. And I want to really dive into what prompted me to reach out to you to have you on. And that was after reading an op-ed piece you and Elbridge Col Colby had written in the Wall Street Journal titled, America's industrial base isn't ready for war with China. One of the reasons my co-founder and I started Paperless Parts is we see the shortcomings of America's industrial base as a national security issue. And we know that automation of front and back office tasks and processes in job shops, the people making the parts that make the products, and specifically the estimating process, it's a way that we can contribute to shoring up our manufacturing base. Now, you're obviously looking at a much bigger picture, and I thought it would be helpful for our listeners to understand this big picture so we can think about our role in it. Maybe you could talk in general what the op-ed piece yeah. discovered. Yeah. So my co-author, Bridge Colby, is one of the big strategic thinkers in America right now on the future of the military, the future of potential conflict with China. He was a senior official at the Pentagon under President Trump. You know, his background is more kind of big picture strategy. Mine is more industrial base and industrial policy. And so we teamed up to think about, okay, in a potential conflict with China, primarily in the event of an invasion of Taiwan, where the United mm -hmm. States feels that it, it is obligated to intervene for our interests, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the industrial base? And how is the industrial base going to respond to that challenge? And what we concluded was that the industrial base is nowhere near ready to sustain the type of conflict that we are likely to have with China over Taiwan. And the reasons for this are, are a couple. One, you know, for many, many years since the end of the Cold War, the U.S. was focused on these short, non-industrial, non-sustained conflicts with non-state actors, with terrorists, mm -hmm. with rogue states like Iraq or, or Taliban Afghanistan. We have not had to focus on a peer adversary since the Soviet Union. And so not only the military strategy that would be needed to, to deal with someone like China has atrophied, but the industrial capacity to actually take on that task has totally eroded. 
Part of that is the general decline of U.S. manufacturing over the last 20 to 30 years. You look at the number of manufacturing facilities in the United States, it's declined yeah. by millions. Your listeners are, are certainly well familiar with that. Look at the number of Americans employed in manufacturing. It continues to, to shrink. You look at then more specifically on the industrial defense industrial manufacturing sector since the 1990s, we've been losing shipyards. We've been losing aircraft manufacturing facilities. We've been losing steel and, and aluminum plants that are going to provide the inputs needed to build the tanks, the airplanes, the ships that we need. And so the general industrial base that's required to sustain military operations at a very high level, it's just, it's way too small. Then, and this is really what prompted Bridge and I to write this, there's an assumption based on 30 years of U.S. military policy that wars are going to be short. We're going to be the, uh, we're going to decide, hey, we're going to invade Iraq. It's a war of choice. We can kind of come or go as we please. And it's not a whole of economy, whole of military endeavor. Well, a war with China would be a whole of economy, whole of military, frankly, whole of society endeavor. And it would require something that we haven't had for, for really since the Korean War, uh, mm -hmm. which is large scale losses by our military. We'll, we'll lose ships, we'll lose aircraft, we'll have a very high human loss as well. That's just the reality of confronting a peer military. And from an industrial standpoint, we simply don't have the capacity right now to sustain and make up for the, the attrition we're likely to face for a sustained conflict. The reality and the problem here, just to give you one example, we shut down our submarine repair facility in Guam in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. um, so you can imagine a scenario where we're losing submarines in combat in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. Well, to repair those submarines, you're going to have to go all the way back to the West Coast potentially in a hostile environment. And you know, that's going to take weeks. And we're going to have potentially a backup of, because of our, our capacity shortfalls, not just in number of shipyards, but in workers, in dry docks, mm -hmm. things as simple as harbor cranes that, that we, you know, I think most people take for granted that we would have. We're going to have a, a shortfall of all those things. And so that's going to make it very difficult for us to sustain military operations at a high tempo for a long period over a great distance. And so that's what Bridge and I wanted to bring to kind of general public attention, that this isn't getting enough attention, obviously, in the public, but it's not even getting enough attention within the Pentagon and within the White House. And, and we need to, if we're going to continue down the path that we're on with China, which I think is a, a you know, we're mm -hmm. in a very dangerous spiral. Our interests are beginning to diverge starkly. Policymakers have to understand the industrial component of, of what a, a adversarial policy with China entails. I really think that what you brought forth about a quick war versus a sustained war and the the industrial base, you can't have a sustained war without an industrial base. And I liked the way you guys put it in the op-ed was it's be like a great team who can only play one quarter. Yeah. But you got to play all four quarters and you're going to get your ass kicked if you yeah. can't keep going. And specifically, I think a wake-up call in, in, a, in a real specific area 
I want to maybe touch upon a couple, but the javelins and stingers that we're sending over to the Ukraine, we can't replace those right now, right? Yeah. Well, it's a huge problem because, you know, we were building javelin anti-tank missiles, stinger missiles. You can go down the list of kind of basic missile systems that the U.S. has traditionally either used for our own purposes or given to partners and allies. Over the last 20 years, we have not built the redundancy into our industrial systems to have surge capacity. So, you know, we expect to have and then the, the bean counters at the Pentagon come up with a formula for how many we expect to need of each of these systems for any given fiscal year. And unfortunately, that doesn't take into account the need to surge capacity either for our own use or for a, a contingency like Ukraine or mm. supplying large quantities to an ally or partner. And so, you know, unfortunately, because, and this is just basic economics, you know, under a normal circumstance, we're not filling enough orders to justify the type of capacity that these facilities need to be able to, you know, to make the investments to have surge capacity. And the Mm -hmm. government over many years has basically said, that's not our job to intervene and to help companies build that surge capacity. You know, there are obviously industrial policy tools that the Pentagon could use to help companies build out additional capacity in case we needed to surge. But for the most part, the Pentagon's been very reticent to do that, to use those authorities. And so we have a situation now where we're having to make very tough decisions. I, I was just in Korea and you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're talking about building, you know, giving the HIMARS artillery system to, to Ukraine. It's been a hugely effective weapon the Ukrainians have used against Russia. Traditionally, the HIMARS is used by US forces in Korea in the event of a North Korean contingency. Well, there are very, very real concerns that as we continue to ramp up the number of HIMARS we provide to Ukraine, are we going to have the capacity to make sure that we have enough HIMARS and enough surge capacity to produce HIMARS that U.S. forces Korea could use them in the event of that contingency? So, you know, Mm -hmm. we're now robbing Peter to pay Paul in way too many instances because we haven't made the, the smart investments in our industrial redundancy. Well, I really like the the surge capacity thinking. And do you see a shift now, or hopefully at least the beginnings of a shift, or thinking that we have to shift? That the Defense Department, as uh, it, it hasn't been, the industrial base hasn't been thought of as part of the Defense Department in the way you're describing. But we better start thinking of it like that. And can you? maybe provide any specific examples, if you're seeing a shift, ways that they are thinking of supporting the domestic manufacturers? Yeah, so a couple positive things have happened, and this is a a rare bipartisan success. You know, the Trump administration began a much greater focus on buy America, hire America. And Mm -hmm. that was a major goal of the president. That's been continued and in some instances even expanded under President Biden. And there's been, I think, a bipartisan understanding that incentivizing manufacturing and hiring and general purchases, whether by the government or by private industry as much as possible, of American components and American-made parts, that's a huge part, not just of our industrial and economic well-being, but it's also a a national defense necessity. 
And, you know, we, we're, I'm, I follow the National Defense Authorization Act in Congress, the big defense bill that passes every year. Mm-hmm. And you look at the provisions that are in there on a bipartisan basis, we're seeing a lot more understanding that, you know, we need to, a lot more provisions are being put forward to require the Pentagon to buy American made components for different ships and aircraft and weapon systems. So that's a big, executive, legislative, and bipartisan success. The other is one of the great tools that the United States government has to encourage industry and to encourage industry from a national defense standpoint is the Defense Production Act. And President Trump used it effectively in the COVID crisis to help manufacture personal protective equipment, masks, vaccines, the whole whole litany. President Biden has continued that. And he's even applied Defense Production Act to the Javelin issue and to helping to to give us additional capacity to build more Javelins and and other anti-tank weapons. So I think there's beginning to be more of a consensus in Washington that one, we have to have a greater industrial capacity to be successful both economically and on national defense. And two, let's use these existing authorities creatively and aggressively to give us that capacity. I think that that's maybe the shove we need because we can maybe talk about demographics and and labor, but if you are requiring this supply to come from within the U.S. and it's not there, then, okay, well, then you start asking the question and needing to solve, why can't we? Whereas the question may be there, but there's not necessarily a requirement to solve it or or a solution can be outside our borders. So I I think that that's a, a great shove. I'm glad you're seeing that. And one of the things that I noted the other day was we opened in the U.S. the first cobalt mine in 30 years and a critical material that we don't want to be dependent upon countries that may not be friendly to our interests. So I think things like this are are starting to happen and certainly appreciate your efforts. One of the other things I'll throw out and the you mentioned we really haven't had to engage since the end of the Cold War about 30 years ago and it made me think about that's sort of when we had the financialization of the global economy, interest yeah. rates trended down and when interest rates trend down when money becomes less expensive then you start to look instead of making better products how can we create profits through financialization and a large part of that was to move manufacturing outside of the u.s particularly to asia where the financialization made it less expensive so we in a sense were short-sighted and that contributed to the the problem we have now but on the flip side with inflation and with interest rates, it takes away that incentive to make things outside of the US. So I think that that's a, another shove that's going to help us bring manufacturing and rise it to the level of importance that it needs to, as you described. To, yeah. I, wanna, I wanna even step back. One of the questions I had after reading, how would you define industrial base? What does that mean? Yeah. Well, I take a very broad 
approach to it. And, you know, one thing I, I would encourage your listeners to do, when President Trump was in office, we did Executive Order 13806, which the title was Assessing and Strengthening the Defense and Manufacturing Industrial Base of the United States. And mm -hmm. Google it and look online. There's a report, unclassified public report that was produced. This was the first ever whole of government assessment of the defense and manufacturing industrial base. We'd never done this in American history before. We mm. got every agency of the U.S. government from, you know, obviously DOD, but commerce and treasury and health and human services and, and you just, you know, transportation, everyone. And we mm. sat down and we figured out okay, to support the U.S. military, what do we need to do that? And took a very broad approach to what constitutes the industrial base. And so, you know, as an example, you, traditionally people think the industrial base is the shipyards and the tank factories and the aircraft manufacturers. Mm -hmm. It's the, it's the components. We actually look down to the fifth tier of the supply chain for every major DOD weapon system. And no one's ever done this before. And we looked down so far that we would literally find examples of, you know, major U.S. weapon systems where the, there was so little understanding of our supply chains at a high level in Washington that when a fifth fourth, third tier manufacturer would go out of business, whole U.S. major weapon systems production lines would shut down and no one even understood why. And you would have generals in the Pentagon frantically, you know, sending up the smoke signal, hey, we're, we're having this huge supply chain issue. We can't send, you know, fill in the blank aircraft out to the field. And we don't even know why we don't have the parts. Well, if you do the supply chain management, you figure out that, you know, down somewhere in Tempe, Arizona at the fifth tier, a, a widget, a manufacturer of some widget for an aircraft has gone out of business. And that has sent a ripple through the entire supply chain. And yes. we had no way to, to map that. And so, you know, one of the things that we did was really trying to institute better supply chain mapping and understand that, that these suppliers are just as critical to the industrial base as Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman and the big prime contractors. The second thing, as you're thinking about the industrial base, it's obviously more than just the direct weapon systems. It's things like steel and aluminum and the inputs that go into making the ships, the planes, the tanks, the, mm -hmm. the whole deal. And you know, for too long, particularly because U.S. trade policy for so long was extremely laissez-faire. It was extremely focused on free trade at all costs. We didn't really pay much attention to the health of the U.S. steel industry, the health of the aluminum industry. You know, you talked about cobalt mining. We weren't paying attention to critical minerals um, mm -hmm. where China has a monopoly. And so we cast a very wide net in terms of what constitutes the industrial base. Frankly, I argued without success at that time that the industrial base should also be critical infrastructure. It should be the railroads that facilitate the movement of steel and aluminum to the smelters and, and on to the, the end product. It should be the St. Lawrence Seaway and the locks and the dams and the entire system of uh, where we move barges with key components and parts across the United States. We have to take a very big picture view of this if we're going to be able to have the redundancy and the surge capacity to compete with, with China. Well, isn't that how the interstate system came about? It was a yeah. defense initiative? 
it was President Eisenhower sold it as a defense initiative. And, and you know, your, your listeners probably know there's still a requirement that every certain number of miles on the interstate, it has to have the capacity for military aircraft to land and take off uh, in the event of, of a national emergency. I didn't um, know that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, so, you know, a lot of the key infrastructure that we've had in this country has had a national defense focus. But like we've talked about for 30 years, we lived in this world where we wouldn't have to think that way. We would just focus on shooting missiles into tents in Afghanistan instead of focusing on, you know, we may one day face a real military challenge that requires us to have a serious World War II style industrial base. And this stuff doesn't take care of itself. It, it requires good policy and good management and leadership to keep it to keep it growing and, and safe. And I think the interstate system is a great example of a investment in something that if we want to call the industrial base for the defense industry, but there's so many other benefits that extend beyond the defense spending, the industrial base. Mm -hmm. And it's not a loss of money to one sector of the economy with no gain to other sectors. It's a has a compounding effect. Oh, it totally does. And your point about you know, the interest rates and the way in which we had focused on the economy from kind of a macroeconomic policy standpoint, I think is incredibly apt. And I saw it firsthand at the White House where we've had this bias in policy and in our, our elites for the last, you know, several decades that service the service economy and financial mm. engineering and instruments, yep. that's the economy that is gets attention and people care about in Washington. And what we've tried to do under President Trump, fortunately, I, I think this is becoming a bipartisan thing, is that there's beginning to be a realization that from a domestic economic, socioeconomic, societal health standpoint, not just to mention defense and, and you know defense and national security, there is a requirement that we have an industrial economy and a manufacturing economy. And that's finally, I think, getting traction in Washington after way too long of prioritizing Wall Street and the service sector. If I could drill into something you mentioned back in the beginning, harbor cranes yeah. and a lot of those are made overseas, specifically China. What the hell happens? How do we have enough harbor cranes? How do we, where we are today, yeah. if, if we have to have harbor cranes, how does that happen? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a two-pronged answer. So theoretically, I think what would probably happen if we didn't make a proactive policy decision in peacetime to mm -hmm. do something about this, we would probably end up having to go and lease harbor cranes from allies and partners. And you would probably see a frantic, you know, across the ocean, you'd see people, barges pulling mm -hmm. harbor cranes from Europe and from the Middle East and, and Central and South America to the US at exorbitant prices. And it would be a mad scramble. And, and there would be frantic meetings in the White House Situation Room for how do we, you know, mm -hmm. someone's going to have to call the the prime minister of Spain and get him to loan us a harbor crane. I mean, it would be a, it would be a mess. Yeah. What we should be doing rather than doing things like that, this is what happened in COVID where we were frantically trying to figure out how to manufacture PPE and, and all right. this stuff. We didn't have enough masks and we're trying to get Honeywell to build masks and they don't have the, you know, they don't understand how to do it. And it was a mess. So to avoid that, 
we have to have the type of industrial planning and strategy in peacetime. So we identify these weak points and we do proactive policies to, to solve it now. So what I would do and, and what has been done in the past is you say, we don't have enough harbor cranes. We don't have an American manufacturing capacity for it. So let's use the Defense Production Act, Title III, which is the title under the law that gives the Defense Department congressionally appropriated money to incentivize businesses that are manufacturing critical national security components, but don't necessarily have a commercial economic incentive, things that can't stand in the market mm -hmm. forces alone won't solve. Mm -hmm. So what, what I would do is would be avail ourselves of Title III and invest in the capacity to make those harbor cranes and repair those harbor cranes now, so mm -hmm. we're not towing harbor cranes from somewhere else in the middle of a war. Gotcha. Go to another area. We as shops have a number of organizations that represent us in Washington. What should we be asking them to say and do on our behalf? Yeah, I think a couple things. One, members of Congress, especially those who don't represent manufacturing heavy districts, need to understand how manufacturing impacts them. And the extent to which your member, you know, your your fellow manufacturers and, and component suppliers and your trade groups are able to make a compelling argument that, well, we may not be the biggest, you know, end use manufacturer in your district, but here are the component manufacturers, here are the, the steel and aluminum, here are the chip manufacturers, here are all the second, third, fourth, fifth tier suppliers to critical in components in products, we map that out. That mm -hmm. needs to be explicit and clear to members of Congress just how critical the every district, every district in America has some critical both national security and economic security manufacturing perspective. And too often members, particularly members who, who represent service and financial heavy districts, just don't appreciate that. And you know, I was always shocked talking to members of Congress when I was at the White House, how so many you know, good patriotic members of Congress don't appreciate how much manufacturing impacts their districts and impacts the people they represent. So we've got to do a better job of, of speaking to them. You know, I think some trade associations are better at this than others. Doing the type of analysis and figuring out how do you make sure that when when you do your your fly-ins when member when companies are flying into washington to meet their members everyone's got to be covered everyone's got to be hit we should have 535 members of congress who are pro manufacturing and you know this should not be a niche thing but but too often it is that's a <laughs> i appreciate that cuz that gives us some talking points to some of these organizations that that i know i'm in contact with and and definitely some of the listeners are actually a part of. Maybe we can flip it a little bit. And if we are a one of those fourth or fifth tier suppliers to a weapon system, looking out in five years, what would your advice be to an owner of a shop so that they have helped make a small dent in improving our capacity and improving 
the industrial base in the country. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a lot that can be done from a industrial efficiency standpoint. There's a lot that folks can be doing within their own business to strengthen their own capacity to be commercially successful, but also to contribute to the defense industrial base. And I don't, I, you know, I don't need to tell your listeners how to do that. What I think is from a policy perspective where your listeners and their businesses can be really impactful is to present on a individual basis when you're lobbying your members of Congress, present how you fit into this kind of and I, it's beginning to take shape, but there's this kind of reindustrialization of America agenda that's beginning to, to take shape across both parties. And I think it's things like making sure the tax code appreciates depreciation, making sure the tax code mm. is you know reflective of the fact that depreciation is something that really matters to manufacturing businesses. Capital gains, talking about how capital gains is not just for Wall Street, having a, a real policy on capital gains tax rates that benefit manufacturers, that's important. Trade policy, critically important. Skills training and vocational training, that's absolutely essential. And making an argument for how we don't need an education system where we're, we're subsidizing millions of Americans to get bachelor's degrees in you know, basket weaving. We need to be incentivizing people to have useful job train skills that can advance our industrial economy. Those are all the type of things, and there's a lot more, that should be part of a reindustrialization agenda that every member of Congress should be able to get behind. That's not Republican, that's not Democrat. That's the, These are just basic, if you believe, and I think every member of Congress should believe, that it's a national security and economic security imperative to have a robust manufacturing economy, those are the type of policies they should be supporting. I'm going to take what you said and even push it maybe more granular for that shop owner is if you are making parts that are somehow involved in a defense product, you know, make sure all the team members at your company know about it. And you want to be proud of what you're doing to support what we, I think, both consider it's a national security issue. So we are supporting through the manufacturer, what may just seem ordinary, we go about our, our day, the ordinary sort of parts that we're making, but they're not ordinary. They are a piece of this whole infrastructure that we need to first ensure is there and then figure out how to build it back as strong as possible. A lot to digest here, Alex. I really appreciate you being on. And as I'm Thinking of all the challenges you've thrown out here, it's sort of like running a shop. There's always <laughs> too much to do, and it's sometimes tough to distinguish between the urgent and the important. I personally appreciate the commitment you've made to improving our industrial base, making it your career, and thank you for taking the time today to educate our listeners and, and help us understand that we need to be a part of this industrial base that may abruptly be shifted to directly protecting our freedom. And I think it's really important we have ombudsmen such as you looking out for manufacturing. And while the conversation was defense-focused, the implications, as we talked about, of having a strong industrial base are so applicable in all aspects of the economy. Yeah. So is there 
anything else you want to share with our listeners? You know, I would just say as a closing thought, every manufacturer in this country really should be an evangelist for American manufacturing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the extent that obviously your listeners have a lot on their plates, they're trying to keep businesses afloat in a a tough economy and, and keep people employed. But the, the, you know, long-term health of our manufacturing economy, and as I've argued, which is directly tied to our national security and our freedom, that depends on the people who are American manufacturing being advocates for it. And, you know, when I came to Washington 15 years ago, you did not see American manufacturers mobilized to lobby and advocate for themselves the way you do now. And I think, you know, part of that is, um, the, the, ch- the threat from China, the trade challenge that China posed, putting up so many American manufacturers out of business, galvanized people and mo- organized people. A part of it is a change in the political discourse in Washington that's become more favorable to manufacturing. Yep. But, but the reality is, unless the people who know the industry and benefit from the industry and run the industry are talking about the industry, you're not going to get the support that you need and manufacturing will continue to lose out to services and to financial engineering. And so we need every manufacturer in America to be their own lobbyist. I love that term, be an evangelist for manufacturing. Definitely. Well, how can people reach you? Yeah, you can go to my website, globalstrategies.com. And mm-hmm. you can send me an email there, find me on LinkedIn and look, you guys are doing incredible work. And this is, I think this is the defining security and economic issue of the time. Yes. Well, thanks again for being on Alex and for the listeners, the Wall Street Journal op-ed that Alex co-authored jolted me and the conversation has been both sobering and I think hopeful. One of the characteristics of the U.S. is that we rise to our best selves in crises. We may not think of ourselves as being in the national security business, but by being involved in the making of parts, we are. And I think we have a responsibility, be that evangelist. So my ask today is if something Alex said grabs you, resonates in a way where you think you can make a difference, no matter how small, I encourage you to act on it. And simply by operating within your shop day to day and striving to improve you and your team's capabilities, you are already contributing. Thanks again, Alex. Really appreciate you being on. And until next time, keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Smile and make it a great day. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to The Job Shop Show.